This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined on the show by Ollie Kay, Stuart Robson, and Mr. Tom Dart. Today we'll be looking at Manchester City and news that Carlito Steves has handed in his transfer request, as well as their uh, 3-1 victory over West Ham. Also in North London Sunday, Spurs hosted Chelsea in another one of those London derbies. And in our debate this week, we'll be focusing on Newcastle United as their eventful week culminates with Alan Pardew enjoying a 3-1 win against Liverpool. So please stay with us for the next 35 minutes or so. Let's start with West Ham and City, but not the game, perhaps, but, of course, the uh, big news that came out late, late Saturday night, um, and I think which has pretty much dominated the last 48 hours. Um, Carlos Tevez handing in a written transfer request, which I guess guess has more weight than simply saying, um, I want to leave, because at least there's evidence of it. Um, Ollie, he cited a whole number of reasons, or rather, there was a whole number of reasons in the News of the World story, which I think we can all agree comes from a, a very a source very close to him, if not the player himself. Um, what do you think the real reason is? I think it's um, I think it's a variety of things. I, th- I think the homesickness issue is genuine. He, he has, you know, he's referred to that. Uh, in interviews, even when he was known to be happy in England, he, he was always saying that homesickness and being away from his family was was an issue that he wanted to move back to Argentina at some stage to play for Boca Juniors. He, he always talked of perhaps even retiring by the time he was 30. So that is an issue. But uh, I mean, if, when you've got a, a, a statement in which he makes pointed reference to um, senior executives at the club, I, I think it. it an awful lot of it reflects um, tensions not between him and Mancini, as was as was first um, believed to be the case, but between uh, Keir Jurabchin, his agent, and uh, Gary Cook, the city chief executive. I think that there's been a situation there for a while, and uh, to be honest, it feels a little like um, Tevez is a pawn in, in, in a wider game, which is just unfortunate. Oh, I'm going to stay with you because um, you know you're, you're up there. You're a little closer to the reporting side of things uh, than the rest of us. Um, one of the one of the lines being spun, um, and I think which Tevez seemed to sort of address when he said, you know, I, I when he said in a statement, I resent the notion that you know I'm I'm somebody's manipulating me. 
is that Kia used to be a big player um, at Manchester City with Mansoor's billions, and then perhaps with the with the emergence of uh, of, of Marwood in, in more the player acquisition role, um, and and of course Mancini coming in and maybe wanting to operate in different markets. Um, he he's not he's not as powerful. He's basically just Tevez and Joe's agent now, and nothing more. Um, does that play into it at all? Well, when when Tevez is talking about relationships with executives, then um, I mean he, he has very little cause to um, even cross paths with Gary Cook or with um, to, to a lesser extent with with Brian Marwood. His relationship is with, is with his teammates, with, with the coaching staff, with Roberto Mancini, obviously, and. To be honest, it doesn't seem like you know this should be an issue for for, for, for Tevez. I mean, may, who, who knows whether um, th- there's been some grave insult uh, against Tevez's integrity behind the scenes? I suspect not, given that he, he was talking, given that the club have been saying that he wanted to sign a new contract very recently. Um, but there, there, there's so much claim and counterclaim. It, it's it's. It's it's nauseating, really. It, it, it's it, even more than the um, the Rooney case. It just seems to be incredibly adversarial between a player and a club, and the agent on one side, and you're not getting the straight story from either side. I think if people are, are tempted to take one side or the other in this, they're they're, they're going to miss a whole load of facts. I, I think it's I think what we're getting is fairly extreme versions of certain truths from both sides, and. Um, an awful lot of spin, and we're going to have to just read between the lines on this one because nobody's telling the well, certainly nobody's telling the whole truth. Right, for, for those out there who might not know about um, his uh, his homesickness and the situation with with his family, um, he has a wife, I believe, was his uh, childhood sweetheart. He's got two little girls. Um, he had a he had a, a, an extramarital issue earlier this year. His wife um, gave birth to his second daughter in in Argentina. They, they used to live over here in England, um, and then afterwards they they basically stayed there. And and I think you know the relations are a bit up and down, and it's his private life, and obviously that's his business. But the way I see it, though, if this is the main concern, um, why he wants to leave, if this is the reason he says I want to go sort out. You know, my family. Um, we can all be cynical about it now, but if it actually does happen, and you would have to take mm. a huge pay cut for it to happen, um, then you can tip your hat to him. Um, if, on the other hand, it's all just a ruse, and he pops up at Real Madrid uh, in a couple months, then you could kind of probably go and call him a, a liar. No, Stuart? Yeah, you're quite right. It's, it's where he goes from here. And how is he going to go back to Argentina? Will the Argentinian clubs be able to pay the, the, the transfer fee? Will they be able to pay his wages? I'm, I'm sure they won't get no, anywhere you near can, it. You could work out a deal like they would have You know, I mean, mm. you you know, you, you give City uh, an option on future players, mm. or if there's players that they want, he takes a big pay cut. You know, there, there are ways, I think, to work that out to some degree. Obviously, he would have to take a huge pay cut to begin with. Yeah, I mean... He, it is an issue being homesick. Um, I, I mean, I played, uh, I wouldn't say right up north, but in Coventry, and my family still lived in London, and that was a, <laughs> what is that, like an hour and a half away. <laughs> but it was, sti- but you still couldn't travel home at, uh, backwards and forwards every day, and that does cause some tension in the. What end. a worse! You're from Essex, but aren't you, you? You still couldn't do the travelling every day. How can you? Tra- how can you travel to training and travel back? You can. Uh, you could. You could go back at the weekends. It's the same thing. You've got. You've 
got Comet and, and Asda and yeah. all those other things you have in yeah, Essex. That's nothing to do, that's nothing to do with homesick. Homesickness isn't about where you shop. It's about being next to your family all the time, seeing your kids every day. And he's not seeing his kids every day. He's not seeing them probably every three months. He's, he, you know, and when I was playing, you couldn't travel up and down the country. You had to stay in a hotel. The club insisted you stayed in a hotel. I had a row with the club because I they were going to buy my house in Essex because it's when you couldn't sell houses so that, um, that I could move up my family up. And that didn't take place because the chairman changed and he changed the rule on that. And one chairman was going to do it, the next chairman didn't. So I resented commentary for that and that was just, that became an issue between me and Bobby Gould and, and the chairman. So that's the sort of thing that can happen when relationships or relationships can go sour. If they've promised him one thing, you can, I don't know, it may have been that he could go home every, every month or something and they've changed their mind on that. There's all sorts of issues that can take place when you're trying to negotiate about seeing your family. There's one specific issue with this is that City, because the signing was so significant because he came from Manchester United, mm. because he was, apart from Robinho, he was the first real superstar player that they signed and it was such a sort of groundbreaking deal for City. We had the infamous welcome to Manchester billboards, etc. I think they've almost encouraged um, Tevez to see himself as uh, the sort of spiritual leader of the club or, or the sort of at least you know if one person was going to be bigger than the club um, I think it's him um, certainly more than Rooney at United and for him to leave or for him to rock the boat in this way I think it does cause City a big big problem Tom uh, they, they, they didn't just uh, um, sit around and, and argue over contracts this weekend at City they actually went to away to West Ham it wasn't save our season day at West Ham which may explain why uh, West Ham lost but um I, what do you make of, of City? Because I, I thought this, I mean, unless I'm mistaken, I think this is their one big win without um, without Carlos Tevez. Um, was it a case of City being impressive or a, a case of West Ham being very poor again? Uh, a bit of both. City were efficient, quite fluid. Uh, it's pretty easy to look good against West Ham, though, especially when you've got that level of attacking talent up against West Ham's defence. Uh, City... Uh, carved apart uh, West Ham by and large with ease. There was a period in the second half when West Ham did look pretty spirited, which if I was Avram Grant, I'd be cherishing that moment of that, the memory of that 10 or 15 minutes when uh, when West Ham threatened to equalise, but uh, they had no, no way of coping with Yaya Toure, and uh, if I was Mancini I'd be uh, certainly looking uh, in the absence of Tevez to get Yaya Toure further and further forward, because he looks like he's got the, the pace and the power and the finishing ability to uh, to weigh in with quite a few goals. Okay, this is interesting because Tom Tom Dart here and uh, you know mark mark the time on the calendar said you know Yaya Torre has the pace, power, and finishing mm. uh, ability to score goals, and he should be playing further up the pitch. Now, for much of the season, all I got is oh negative Catenaccio Mancini playing three defensive midfielders. Yaya Torre can't play up the pitch. Blah blah blah. Um, can he play up the pitch? Is, is Tom right or is Tom on powerful hallucinogenic drugs? Absolutely. On Saturday, you know, and I've been critical of Manchester City, particularly when I saw them against Manchester United and I saw them against Chelsea. They defended well all around the pitch, but they didn't have any. Uh, they didn't try and attack with any sort of fluency and didn't get players forward. At times on Saturday, they played with four strikers. West Ham were on the edge of Man City's box, and on the halfway line, there was four Manchester City players: David Silva, Balotelli, Joe, and Yaya Torre. Yaya Torre almost 
always played as a centre forward, a second centre forward. At times he did drift back when the game, when they'd already won the game, he started to drop back and get the ball, and then the other two midfield players went beyond him. But their movement up front was brilliant. You could tell me if, if anybody could tell me where David Silva was playing, I, I think you'd be a liar because he, he played here, there, and everywhere. Joe and Balotelli kept on swapping positions. I thought their movement and, and, and fluency and uh, link-up play was absolutely brilliant on Saturday. Ollie, this kind of movement and fluency that um, that, that Stuart talks about, is this all sort of managerial, tactical genius, or is it just kind of like the manager saying, you know, you front four, you guys just try not to get into each other's way and move about the pitch, and they're rubbish anyway, and just keep the ball and score? Well, I, th- I think Mancini certainly should take a, a lot of credit for, for, for the way they've played the, the, the last sort of four or five weeks or so. They've, they've probably played as well as anyone in the country in, 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 that, in that period. But if you look at the players they've signed, it's... The players they signed this summer, in particular, you look at Milner, um, Silva. I know Milner didn't start, and I know Adam Johnson didn't start the other day. But there seemed to be an emphasis on more fluidity, um, more sort of versatility, so that they can maybe change things uh, during the match, change the system, even sort of people swap sides and so on. It, it just seems like it's it, it's more of a fluid team than people realise. If you look at the back the back six or seven in terms of the you know, the back four, the goalkeeper and the um, and the two defensive midfielders, that is um that tends to be pretty rigid but but, but the the players further forward they all have license almost to go where they like um, and, and it works it, 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 there have been occasions in, in home matches particularly where, they, where they've struggled to break teams down but, but their away form has been, uh, has been fantastic um, Tom I, you know people always go out and talk about who the next manager is going to be sacked and so on uh, um, Avram Grant at the bottom seems to be getting very very little love um did you see any signs out there? Did, did you, was, it, was there any talk afterwards? Do you have any particular insight on whether uh, Avram's going to uh, it's going to last much longer? Well, certainly Avram was talking about spending money in, in January and having meetings with the board to, to get money and spend. There was no sense from, from what he said that he was expecting. Uh, the, the bullet in his body language was no different to previous games really his body language is generally all the same right yeah it's just him in his black shirt and yeah but he was no more depressed and gloomy than he usually is <laughs> <laughs> so that's maybe the best we can say that said uh, there is a gap opening up now and you look at West Ham's next games Blackburn Everton Fulham Wolves uh, before between now and New Year's Day and if West Ham cannot win two of those games then this will be a side that is going to get relegated because it will not be able to beat the sides above them you can forgive them losing to Man City because most people do and Man City won't join top uh, and the, the nature of the performance wasn't that unencouraging in terms of spirit but there's just no one scoring the goals the defence doesn't look like it's got a clue there's no overall tactical vision it seems to me there's no enormous team spirit there's no uh, apart from Scott Parker but Scott Parker is now doing everything and showing what a great player he is because he's taking on the mantle for being the defensive midfielder and the attacking midfielder he's at the back and he's up front shooting and tackling because no one else is really and yeah, you know, c- c- certainly some people inside the club think that he's going to Tottenham in January and if he does well Avram Grant could, could have 10 million to spend and sign three new players but if they lose Scott Parker there really is a no hope because he is uh, at the moment not only the best player but also a symbol of determination and energy and effort which is sorely lacking from the rest of them. Do you think Avram Grant will be signing the players or because the impression I had over the summer is that 
um, David Sullivan has uh, and his son um, have a very active role in, uh, in in sort of you know talking to scouts directly and and really you know doubling up as owner director of football but do they actually talk to scouts I thought it was Barry Silkman that mm. did most of the uh, transfer deals whenever you see a picture of uh, Sullivan and Gold Barry Silkman's not far away and that's a worrying so- way to go if you're now just buying players off agents or getting agents recommendations you know it's the wrong way to go you sh- must have a scouting system that you're looking all around the world you're looking at players six or seven not just saying well who's available who can you get for us who's Barry Silkman's uh, on, who's on his books or well, we buy those you know look at some of the signs he had at the end of last season that have never really played you know it's it's a shocking way to go. and and you said it quite right there's no tactical vision at West Ham at the moment I saw it in the first game they said I cannot tell you what they're trying to do what their game plan is they had they had that 10 minute spell which you talked about where they actually said and, and Wally Downs came out and everyone got let's go along let's try and get it into Carlton Cole let's try and get it into to um, Abina and, and Pickett I think they all three were on the field at the same and let's play from there and they kept the ball in Man City's half and you can think well okay now it's not an idea way of playing in terms of long ball but at least you've got a structure to your game plan in the first half and for most of the game you know they were throwing the ball out and there was nobody in, the, 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 the fullback was isolated and they had the ball taken off him a couple of times they threw it into Scott Parker in midfield and there was there was no one around him so he got challenged there was no game plan whatsoever and if you're going to have any chance of survival you have to have a basic game plan and then play from there and West Ham haven't got that at the moment mm-hmm. Blackpool, Blackpool have worse players and but a, they have a, a worse defence uh, in theory but they have a game plan players will bought into their manager's exactly. tactics exactly. and they play like a team uh, moving on to the other big game Spurs go out they take the lead Michael Dawson's back and Chelsea are in crisis and what struck me was you know you get the early goal I, I kind of would have expected more from Spurs like uh, a better ability to keep control of the game instead I saw at the end Chelsea had 60% of the, the possession they had a lot more shots on goal um, story I, from, from a tactical coaching perspective if you were Spurs, how should you have played? I mean, what would you have done once you've got that, that, that early lead to keep control of the game and not let not let Chelsea back in? Well, the one thing that, that Tottenham played with was two centre-forwards. Now, if you play with two centre-forwards, you've got to play quickly into the front players because if you allow the opposition to start to take control, they've got three versus two in central midfield. They're going to dominate the game. And that's Spurs allowed Chelsea to get back in the game. And in the end, Chelsea, I thought, were the, were the better team in terms of their passing and their movement and their, their creativity. Uh, so I think that's where Tottenham went wrong they should have used the front players more they should have played the game or tried to play the game in Chelsea's half but when they lost possession their midfield dropped off they allowed Chelsea to start to dictate the play and that was always going to be a problem and you, I always felt that Chelsea would get back into the game Tom is this something that you blame the manager for? No I don't think so and Spurs have great trouble keeping clean sheets and I think they've kept a clean sheet since uh, since August their their problem was just not scoring their second goal when they were on top in the first half just after they scored the first and there were a couple of moments when brilliant last stitch tackles from John Terry stopped Jermaine Defoe from getting through Pavlyuchenko had a couple of half chances Bale maybe didn't quite get the pass the last man and get get the cross in they came even though they only had one shot on target in the match, Spurs in that first half came close to creating a, another really good opportunity to score the second goal, which might then uh, have caused Chelsea to, uh, to to implode and Spurs could have gone on and won one more comfortably. Uh, it's, it was just an incredibly open game and 
that's one of those games where you just have to you know, admire the, mm. the pace and the skill and the excitement. All right, Ollie, was it a case of Spurs screwing up and letting Chelsea back in, or was it a, a case of Chelsea just being too good? I mean, I think we heard Tom's view, we heard Stewart's view. Um, like Seth Blatter, you have the casting vote. Well, I think if you look at uh, Chelsea's two previous away defeats uh, at Birmingham and, and at Liverpool, they conceded early goals in both of those games and, and then had the majority of the possession in the second half but in those two games they didn't they, they didn't show as much sort of vigour and, and self-belief as, as they seem to show and, and, and quality as they seem to show in the second half yesterday I, I thought they did I thought they played really well in the second half yesterday I thought had they not got the goal that would have been I think that would probably have left them devastated really because to, to, to have played that well and um, and not got anything out of the game would have been um, would have been um, very difficult for them to take after the results they've had. I mean, if you look at the way Tottenham have played the last... Um it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The, the last 12 months, really. I mean, the, the, the way they play is, is, is set in stone. They, they, they try to pass it through midfield and, and, and get, the, get the ball forward to the front players and Generally, generally it's four four two, and it works very well. And uh, I, I think Chelsea two weeks ago maybe wouldn't have dealt with that as well as, well as they did uh, yesterday. I thought, I thought it was encouraging, and I, I, I didn't really see um, much uh, criticism to make of the two teams. I could criticise some of the defending, I could criticise some of the midfield play, but uh, but I, I would say that the two teams both both played quite encouragingly. Um. Tom, uh, Ancelotti drops uh, Drogba. Um, officially, it was because of he felt that against those defenders, uh, Anelka would be more appropriate playing up front. My understanding is that he didn't like the way when things got bad against Everton, they resorted to hitting long balls towards Drogba, and Drogba right now isn't the kind of Drogba who can hold, hold them up and really thrive on those long balls like he might have done a few years ago. Um, then the guy comes on. I mean, w- would you have... Does it send a message? Is there? Would you have dropped your your star center forward in, in a game like this? Um, did he get it right? He did get it right. I mean, Jogba <coughs> made, made a difference in the second half, but against Marseille last Wednesday, Jogba was... Com- just awful and if you're Ancelotti needing a result in this game you you just can't pick a player who's been so poor for the past month no matter how uh, how good he's been for you in the past I think without Lampard there it's perhaps not the uh, accurate service to Drogba and the the interplay between the forwards and the midfield that you would normally get if if Lampard is there and on his game and when you have Lampard there 
with Drogba that will make Chelsea much more effective perhaps that's been a factor in why Drogba hasn't looked so good in the past month and you have the malaria but also you have uh, uh, he seems to be uh, uh, kind of consumed by his own uh, uh, ego is the right word but you know, the way he celebrated that goal afterwards it was uh, it was as if he he was making a point to Ancelotti that oh, this is Drogba he should have been on the pitch putting him on the bench hadn't really given him the kick at the backside and then coming on to school just reinforced Drogba's apparently unshakable belief in his, his own self-worth Sure, isn't it good if you've got players with unshakable belief and their own It is good, and, but I think Tom's right. I think Ancelotti didn't do it for tactical reasons, as he said. He did it to give uh, Drogba a kick up the backside. You haven't been playing well. I don't think you've been working hard enough. I'm going to put other player, uh, other players in the team up front. I think we, we might cause more, the more problems with, your, with their movement rather than you just standing up, not really working up. So when he came on, he had a point to prove, and he proved his point because he started to, to knock Dawson out the way. He, he sort of scored a very good goal, missed the penalty, but he looked a totally different player to the one he's been over the last month or so. So Angelotti's kick up the backside has worked. Ollie, you get the final word on this. Um, give us, put on your clairvoyant hat and please give us uh, the, the sort of the medium term view for Chelsea and whether Frank Lampard's return um, can make can make a difference and, and keep uh, Chelsea as contenders or indeed lift them to, to favourites. They'll definitely be better off with uh, with Lampard there. I think he gives them more thrust from midfield. Um, I think Essien wasn't at his best yesterday, and and he will presumably get back towards something like his best form in the, in the next few weeks. You would imagine Drogba will too. So I, I can see things uh, things improving for Chelsea. There was enough encouragement there in the second half, but they um, their next two games are are huge ones at home to Manchester United and away to Arsenal. I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure, but I wouldn't mind betting that they they would uh, that they'll win at least one of those games. But they they really do need wins. They, they, I think they're unbeaten in three now. But it, but what is it? One win in one win in six, one win in seven. It just isn't good enough. Um, they need to get that momentum back. And um, I think these next two games, uh, along with yesterday's, will be fairly crucial for that. No debate this week. We look at Newcastle United, um, and uh, obviously quite a week for them. Um, Chris Hutton let go on, on Monday and replaced um, not that long afterwards by Alan Pardew. Um, there's a tremendous amount of subtext here, and you've got uh, an active uh, internet and, and, and rumors and things doing the round, and, and Alan Pardew and, and casinos and, and things like that. But what interested me most was was the the, the, the line, which um, I'm sure you guys all saw it. It was in the, the local paper in Newcastle that tried to explain, if not justify, the decision, which was simply that Chris Hutton is a coach, and what Newcastle needed was a manager. And Alan Pardew is more of a manager, I guess, in the ownership views than Chris Hutton is. Um, Ollie, suspend disbelief a second and say if if this is their line of reasoning then is it a fact that Pardew is more of a, of a manager than uh, Hewton? Well, I've got to say, my, my, my first instinct when I saw that line in the paper, which clearly came from, uh, from the boardroom, was that it seems to be the first time in uh, three and a half years, that, or however long Ashley's been there, that they've actually wanted somebody like that. I think when they got rid of Keegan, it was because... Um, Keegan wouldn't fit into the, the their way of doing things, which was to foist players on him and against his um, against his 
his wishes and, and, and they, they didn't seem to be Sorry if interested. I jump in there, Ollie, just to complete your thought there. That's back when they had the executive director bracket football on bracket Dennis Wise, right? Yeah, it is, but, but, the, but the, there's just complete inconsistency about the whole thing. I mean, what, what, what do they want? Are they making it up as, as they go along? I suspect they are. I think Pardew is a more authoritative figure. Um, people, you know, people damn him with the, with the thing of... It, you know, he's a guy who was sacked by Southampton a few months ago, but he he is a good manager who who perhaps his last two jobs haven't gone as well as um, as as he would have hoped. He is a good manager, but undoubtedly he um, he got the job because um, he was better known to people like Derek Lambias than than maybe other out of work managers. Ollie, what makes you say he's a good manager? I think you look at his, his, the work he did at Reading. Um, you look at the work he did at, um, at West Ham for. Three out of three and a half years. I, I, I think his I think his his record is good. He, he clearly gets gets a lot out of players. It didn't work from at Charlton, but I don't think anything would have worked at Charlton at that particular time when they were in the post Kerbishly depression. Um, and I, I think even at Southampton, he, he seems to have done a decent job. I, I speak to the odd player who played under him, and they're, they're always full of praise for him. I, I mean. I, I think he's he's sharp tactically without being um, necessarily groundbreaking. Um, I think he's, he's authoritative and, he, and he's a good motivator. Despite that, I would say that he got the job as a bit of a act of cronyism. But, um, but could you elaborate I, on that? Well, there was all this talk last week um, that he'd got the job because he was casino mate. Uh, he was a casino mate of Mike Ashley and uh, Derek Lambert, and he he wanted to clarify that at the press conference by saying that. He'd um, he'd only met Derek Lambias eight or nine times, and uh, uh, I say Lambias doesn't strike me as somebody who moves around constantly in football circles. And I, I wonder how many other out of manager, out of work managers, stroke desirable managers, he has met eight or nine times. I, th- I think to have met um, Derek Lambias eight or nine times and told him, oh, you know, I could do a job with that team, probably puts you at, at, at an advantage. Tom. Uh, he seems to be trying to keep a low profile. He's being gentle. He's perhaps learnt from the mistakes of the past, trying to avoid the uh, the kind of hubris that he had uh, at West Ham, I think, when he brought a Ferrari and uh, kind of appeared to initiate that baby Bentley culture at the club, which uh, which Alan Kirby was so upset about. He was... Uh, it, uh, he was perhaps too caught up in his own uh, his own self-belief, Pardew, when everything was going well and then didn't handle it well when... Uh, when his stock fell a bit when it all came apart pretty rapidly at West Ham I think he's now slightly older and wiser but he does still have a great uh, I call it arrogance call it extreme self-confidence if you want that will in the end uh, serve him well allied to as Oli said his solid tactical ability and clearly well, his I, networking ability which uh, <laughs> which we can't discount well I, I just can't see Alan Pardew for the life of me you know I, I'm not sure what, what he's done in management I, I know players that have played under him particularly at West Ham who said that he was arrogant he wasn't a particularly good coach they played long ball football I um, if we jump back to the man who laughed Chris Hutton I mean I, he was a guy I've, I've met a couple of times and I, I find him extremely likable I think for, for those who, who weren't paying attention his results are um, Newcastle with a bloated, overpaid, generally crummy um, set of players get relegated. Uh, the Ashley says, oh, I don't really want to spend too much money. Let's just get rid and cut costs and stuff. And they do that. And with the players who are left, many of whom 
had reputations, but obviously, you know, you would think psychologically in the championship uh, uh, that he'll be down in the dumps. Um, he makes it work. He, he gets them promoted. He pushes Andy Carroll and Niall Ranger in, 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 into the first-team squad, and now he's 12th. So that's sort of uh, a shooting capsule there. But if you were um, Ashley and, and you saw Hewton, and let's assume for a minute that it is true that when it comes to the transfer market, um, it's not his. It's not his forte. I mean, there were stories that, you know, he that he wasn't involved at all in the Hatem Ben Arfa deal, and you know didn't have an objection to it, but couldn't really bring any anything to the table on it. Um, what would you have done? Would you would you have tried to get Hutton more involved, give him more powers over who comes in and out? Would you have tried to to bring a, a, a director of football type or transfer expert to work alongside him, maybe even under him? Um, how, how would you have, would you simply have kept Hutton, kept the status quo? What, what, what would you have done? I would have probably kept an open mind on it because they, because they, they, they had slipped into a bit of a, uh, a trough results-wise. It was only, whatever, four weeks or three or four weeks since they'd, they'd, um, they'd won at Arsenal and beaten Sunderland. But, but the results had dipped. So I, I, think, I think there was a cause for just keeping a, an open mind on it, thinking, what do we do if... Um, if things continue to deteriorate, but I, I, I didn't see a case of sacking Chris Hewton at all. I mean, obviously, I don't see everything that goes on at Newcastle. But having been at um, their game against Chelsea, I think eight days before um, before he was sacked, that, that, that was not a team that had um, stopped playing for, for for the for the manager. Um, what would they, you have done they, about his contract, though? Because obviously, it was it well, was winding down at the end I, of the season. I, I, I didn't see the fact that his contract was winding down as a problem. I would say that Newcastle have made enough mistakes in the past, long-term uh, appointment mistakes, and met, maybe this one in a five-and-a-half-year contract will be one of them. But they've made enough mistakes in the past to um, to warrant keeping an open mind on um, on Hewton, looking at his future towards the end of the season, maybe then deciding... Uh, you know, give him an extra year, give him a, you know, a rolling contract, whatever. I think what they could have done is, is given him a better pay deal because I think he was one of the worst paid managers in the Premier League. But then if you give him a, a, a pay rise but no extension to the contract, does that create more uncertainty? Does it create more questions and answers? I, I don't know. But as I said, an open mind would have been, um, would have been fine. Uh, but it seems like they had a closed mind about him. It seems like they they just wanted to sack him at the first sign of trouble. Um, I want to throw uh, one other thing out there. Uh, I kind of got the sense um, that, you know, while Ashley, I mean, the line from George Culkin and others up there who know the club well was that it's not as if Ashley lost interest in the club and the club weren't officially for sale, but if somebody came in with an offer, he wouldn't mind somebody taking the club off his hands. Should we read this as the fact that maybe Mike Ashley's interest in the club is somehow stoked again, uh, maybe because they're back in the Premier League and he's now going to be more involved and, and more present and presumably put more money in. Um, and if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Tom? I think that's right. Now they're back in the Premier League and doing pretty well. It would be only natural for the owner to uh, want to go to the games and perhaps uh, enjoy the success having... Uh, Suffered uh, at least. if he just gets abused at every game. Well, I mean, it's, it's not, not enjoyable, <laughs> is it? Yeah. He might be a masochist of some kind. Maybe enjoy the success from behind a glass box and lots of security. Yeah, I think Ashley has tried to sell the club twice and failed. He clearly cannot get the price that he wants for the club. Maybe he believes that the more hands-on he gets, the better Newcastle will do. Uh, maybe he's got that that self-belief, and therefore eventually the club will be worth more. Maybe he's. Uh, 
maybe he feels that uh, but uh, it does seem like uh, Newcastle fans are stuck with him for for the, the short to medium term at least all right time now for some quick hits Liverpool lose 3-1 at Newcastle. There's false internet rumours suggesting that Roy Hodgson's quitting. Uh, Torres gets abused by Joey Barton, who, well, I think you can go and watch the clips for yourself. Um, Ollie, what's wrong? I, I thought Roy was slowly turning things around. Is this just a blip? Well, no, I think, I think it's been one step forward, one step back with Liverpool for, for, for the last couple of weeks. It's been, um, I mean, th- th- there's no consistency there, really. There's... There've been a lot of poor performances. I didn't think for the first hour on Saturday, uh, Saturday they were too bad, but there's just no real belief, real conviction around the team, and that, that's the worrying thing. Staying on Merseyside a week after holding Chelsea to a nil-nil draw, Everton absolutely stink it up at home, and they're held nil-nil by Wigan. Stuart, which is the real Everton, and why is Moyes? finding it so so difficult this season well when I look at their back players and their midfield players I think they're still a top 6-7 side but it's in the front areas they're struggling Louis Sahar hasn't been at his best Yakubu's started to play well and then got out injured and they've had Cahill playing up front if they can get confidence around the goal Beckford's been a real disappointment for them they need to work harder in the front areas that's where they're causing themselves problems just the front areas everything else is okay Villa beat West Brom, halting a run of four consecutive losses, but there are reports of a bust-up between Gerard Houllier and Richard Dunn. Uh, Tom Houllier's had injuries, he's played the kids, some of his veterans have been awful. Um, are these sufficient mitigating circumstances for you to say that he was still the right appointment? No, not for me. Even allowing for the uh, almost certainty that Villa would decline after O'Neill left because they've hit the glass ceiling and uh, the only way was down. They've still been much worse than I was expecting. And it's not just Richard Dunn. There's John Carew. There's Stephen Ireland. Eight million pound signing, sixty-five grand a week. Should be uh, one of the most talented players in the Premier League. Appears to have vanished. Uh, there's plenty of problems here. <laughs> Bolton win again, defeating Blackburn and hanging on to sixth place. Uh, Ollie, Owen Coyle has changed the club's style and he's done it on a, on a relative shoestring. Um, do you think you'll be managing a bigger club in two years' time? Um, yes, I do. Uh, without wishing to offend Bolton fans, I, I think he, I think they are they're on that upward curve. But I think his his upward curve is is steeper, if you like. His, his reputation is growing by the week. I read a fantastic. Um, interview with him in the Sunday Times yesterday where Jonathan Northcroft, the writer, said he felt like he would run through brick walls after speaking to him. I, I almost felt like that way after reading it. So uh, the next big job that comes up, if it's in the next few months, I can see it being Owen Coyle's. You heard it here first, Bolton fans. Enjoy Owen Coyle while you can. Birmingham City lose to Wolves and remain perilously close to the drop zone. In the summer, Alex McLeish replaces small, nippy striker Chucho Benitez with a big, slow one, Nikola Zigic. And then James Fadden got hurt. Is this enough to explain the slide? Uh, that's partly the reason because if he's six foot seven or six foot eight, whatever he is, he should be winning balls in the air. He doesn't do that, and he can't run in behind. But I think it's almost second season syndrome. The players aren't working as hard. You know, if, last season they worked hard all over the field. They closed down. They ran off the ball. They're not doing that so much now. And if they don't do that, they're not a particularly good team. Interesting. The ex-pro blames the players, while we, the journalists, tend to blame the managers. Stoke are also a different side this year to last year too, but their league position hasn't changed much. Tom, which Stoke did you like better? And is this about as good as it's uh, going to get? I don't see too much change between this season and last season, to be honest. Uh, Cameron Jones has maybe made a difference up front, but uh, 
yeah, two of their most creative players. You know, Adi Johnson is always on the bench these days. Uh, six successive games on the bench. Tunchai struggles to get in the team. Uh, not too much change. Maybe Edrington's playing better. Is it as good as it's going to get? Yes. Here's one for you, Gab. Rafa Benitez Inter have won just two of their last nine in all competitions. Does his future really hinge on the World Club Cup this week? And who do you think will win it? Um, th- that's the message coming from the club. But, um, although my information is a bit different, I, I think it would be stupid to go and judge him on, on just two games. I think he's got until um, February, March to turn it around a little bit in the league and get at least get to the quarterfinal of the Champions League. If he screws that up, he's gone. And as for who will win it, eh, I would safely say it's going to be Inter. But um, I'll be clever because, of course, the champions of South America are also Inter from Porto Alegre. Thanks for hanging with us. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Game. In the meantime, you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find all your news, your gossip, your analysis. Also, our web chats. Mine's every Monday. Ollie's is on Wednesdays. And Patty Barclay's is on Tuesdays. You can also follow us on Twitter. And by the way, did you know that The Times actually have two people among the top four most followed UK football journalists? Next week, uh, it's going to be another big one. Chelsea take on Manchester United, Stamford Bridge. And Roy Hodgson takes on his old club, Fulham. Thanks so much for joining us. Till next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.